It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, a conversation with Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Last month, she addressed the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy that has led to families being separated and an effort to reunite them at the southwest border. Today, she speaks with Peter Alexander, a national correspondent for NBC News. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held June 19th at the Aspen Security Forum in Aspen, Colorado. Here's the conversation between Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and NBC News correspondent Peter Alexander. Madam Secretary, thank you for being here as well as we plug you in. Obviously, uh, we understand the critical mission the Department of Homeland Security has, a broad mission beneath you, the Secret Service, TSA, as we've been talking about. Homeland Security has a critical responsibility, so we're grateful you spending time, and hopefully today we can peel back a couple leaves, peel back a, the curtain here, and get a little inside take on what goes on behind the scenes at DHS and some of your thinking. So let me start, if I can, today, as we're here enjoying a little bit of breakfast with what happens in your morning each day, what the morning update looks for you, what your, what your morning briefing looks like, what the most pressing issues are facing the country that show up on that briefing list for you that you're told about, ones that require you to act on a daily basis? Sure. Uh, it's a good question. I'm kind of laughing because sometimes we call that the Debbie Downer part of the day. Uh, we go through Intel. We have a morning tempo where uh, each of the components briefs out new emerging threats uh, or a different, actually we do both. We do the bad news and the good news. So we do the takedowns, we do the captures, we do the interdictions, uh, but mostly we're focused on the emerging uh, threats and then figuring out what we need to do to change our posture to mitigate it. Uh, we also have a couple operational VTCs. We have a couple uh, times a week with the component heads. Uh, many of them are here today, and I thank them for joining us. Uh, to just make sure that we're synced. That's the opportunity to sort of raise those yellow flags, red flags. I like the yellow flags better because hopefully it gives us the uh, opportunity to prevent the red flag. There is, so DHS of course now uh, 15 years in, yeah. was created after 9-11. I think there's an assumption along, uh, among a lot of Americans right now that a 9-11 type threat is behind us. And the assumption by a lot of people right now is that the biggest terrorist threat to the homeland is a homegrown lone wolf actor. Do you agree with that? First of all, is a 9-11 threat mostly behind us? And is the largest terrorist threat to the homeland right now a homegrown lone wolf type actor? So I guess what I would say is I think there are still those who would like to have a big attack, a big phenomenal attack to promote their ideology, uh, to promote their capability and ability. So I wouldn't discount that possibility, whether it's WMD or, uh, as, as Jose mentioned, I mean, we still worry very much about aviation. We continue to see uh, those uh, perfecting uh, their opportunities to attack us through the aviation. What I would say is it, the threat has changed a lot. I worry a lot about cyber. I think the cyber attack surface is much bigger than the physical attack surface. Uh, it affects all of us from a mom to, in a kitchen teaching her kids through a computer uh, to a very advanced financial system. I think what we've seen with terrorists is they have spread out. Uh, we've had a lot of success in theater. The downside of that is as the caliphate disappears, we see them reconstituting in other places, but mostly online. Uh, so what we see is uh, them instructing followers online, 
bring your own device, uh, grab any common uh, element, do-it-yourself terror. Uh, so I think terror's gone viral in that sense. I think the third big thing we're seeing that's different is nation states. I mean, we have a re-emergence of a nation state threat, which we haven't seen for quite some time at the extent that we have now. So at DHS, what that means is we have to go from counterterrorism to counter threats, right? It's a much bigger panoply of uh, personal threats. I mean, we still have got the bad weather, the bad bugs, the bad things, you know, everything else that we work on. Uh, but from a people perspective, I think the terrorist threat has changed and expanded, and now we have different threat actors. So let me ask you about some of the news of the day, since obviously people are waking up to the headlines surrounding the president's recent trip. We saw earlier this week, President Trump met with Vladimir Putin. How do you do? You know, I think it's important to have that engagement. Uh, I think he's interested in continuing the engagement. When we think about nation states, there are things we can work with them on and things that perhaps we will disagree on. Uh, but I do think the engagement and finding a way to have a productive conversation is very, very important. So how did the president do? America's, America watched. He's clarified multiple times since. I think he continues to work on the relationship. I mean, I think he's continuing to think about strategies, what's important, uh, what is most important on the list uh, to work with Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, Putin has a particular way in which he communicates. He has a particular goal in mind. Uh, you know, he's very interested uh, in being a, a strong power in, in his region, in his sphere, uh, to counter American power. I think our motivations are slightly different. Uh, so I think it's ongoing. I think it's too early to tell, you know, was it, was it, was it a good? So let me, let me ask you just for some clarity on some things. The president has cast doubt, as we've seen, on the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. Even in his clarification this week, I was in the cabinet room. He accepted the findings, but he said could be other people also. So can you say definitively that during the campaign, Russia, at the direction of Vladimir Putin, launched an attack on our country and that it was done to favor the election of Donald Trump? What I would say is I don't think there's any question uh, in the intel community or at DHS that Russians attempted to infiltrate and interfere with our electoral system. They have the capability, they have the intent. Uh, what we're doing at DHS is to work with states to prepare on that election infrastructure piece. That's the piece we have lead on, but I don't think there's any doubt that they did it. And I think we should all be prepared, given that capability and will, that they'll do it again. But that it, the, the question of it being at the direction of Vladimir Putin last, uh, I guess we're in July. In May, you said, I don't believe that I've seen that conclusion about the idea that Vladimir Putin directed it and that it was done with the intention of favoring yeah, Donald that Trump. Was, that was, uh, do you want to clarify? Well, sure, because just not to quibble, that wasn't exactly the question that was asked. It was one of those, you know, specific to the, the intel assessment, uh, whether the president believed one part or another. What I would say is it's government, it's government actors, Russian government actors. I think we can all draw a conclusion what that means. But the question specifically know, do was, do you believe that it was done in favor of Donald Trump? Oh, I see to what favor. The question was yeah. that it was done to favor Donald Trump. So do you want to clarify what you had said then? You yeah, said, I, I don't that believe that I've seen the conclusion that the specific intent was to right. help Trump win. So I, I haven't seen any evidence that the attempts to interfere in our election infrastructure was to favor a particular political party. I think what we've seen on the foreign influence side is they were attempting to intervene and cause chaos on both sides, right? Whether it was in Charlottesville where we saw them on both sides, whether it's in Syria, both sides. So and I, no, I would not necessarily say that was the purpose. I think the overall purpose is to sow discord and uh, get us all to fight against each other rather than understand who the enemy is. But for clarity, the intelligence community did have that finding, right? Their finding was that it was in an effort 
to favor the president. Agreed? It was in an effort to uh, attack certain political parties that we know about, right, uh, more than others. And so I think we'll continue to, to look and see what that means and be prepared for the next time. So uh, the president, as we noted, said that it could be other people also. Were other people responsible for that attack in 2016? I think what we look at DHS when we're looking at 2018, or 2000, this year and then 2020, uh, there are unfortunately other nation states that have the capability. But for that so attack, think, were there others involved in that attack or was it Russia? We have seen other nation states involved in foreign influence. Uh, we did not see other nation states involved in the election system meddling. So that was Russia? We can agree. We, Russia was absolutely attempting to interfere in our election systems. The president was asked yesterday if Russia is still targeting the United States. A lot of people are concerned about the midterm elections coming up. So I guess the simple question is, is Russia still targeting the United States? I think we would be foolish to think they're not. They have capability. They have the will. We got to be prepared. You said, uh, you told some state election officials a couple days ago the following. You said there are no indications that Russia is targeting the 2018 midterms at a scale or scope to match their activities in 2016. Yes. Should Americans take assurance from that? And how can you, how can you judge intent, Russia's intent? Well, I think we know their intent. Uh, their intent is absolutely to interfere in our democracy. So, but, but intent what, that it wouldn't be to match what they did two years ago. But that's, uh, I wouldn't say that. What the question was uh, in that context was, what do we see today? It's July. Uh, so we still have August, we still have September, we still have October, we have November. I think we should be absolutely prepared to assume that they will try to interfere in all 50 states. So what are we doing about that right now? What can the DHS do actively to help stop that? And is the president, has he met with you personally and given you the directive to make sure that the U.S. is preparing itself for an attack in the midterms from Russia like the last one? Yes, we have had uh, meetings with the uh, president. We have another one coming up. Uh, DHS plays a supportive role. We have a federal lead, but we play a supportive role with uh, state and local election officials and secretaries of state who have the overall responsibility. So. Uh, I could go on and on in everything we do. Uh, we have a whole handbook of different services that we offer. But at a very high level, we're information sharing, we're giving them intel they need, uh, technical assistance, and then we're helping them be prepared for incident response. I'm happy to report, and was on Saturday, that all 50 states are now working with us. Uh, in some cases, they're using our services extensively. In other cases, they're growing capability organically. And in some cases, they're hiring outside uh, expertise. But it's a complex system. So the key is really to be very clear where the vulnerabilities are and to make sure we have redundancies built into the system. We, uh, sorry, we were talking about some of the new polling today that Daphne was saying before we got here. The, the latest polling from NBC just released says that 59% of Americans tell us they are not confident that the federal government is doing enough to prevent foreign countries from influencing our elections. That's uh, a worse number than it was a year ago in terms mm -hmm. of confidence. So what's missing? What are Americans missing that's happening? Or why should they take reassurance from what they've heard right now that it's not gonna be as bad as before? Yeah, so I think there's two, there's an important distinction there. Uh, one is the attacks on the critical infrastructure systems which is what DHS has lead on, and that's the, that's the votes, right? We have no evidence votes were changed in the last election. Uh, that, would be, that would be a marked uh, increase in aggression from a foreign nation. And when you say change, you mean votes. physically like numbers change. So not influence perhaps, not but physically, but virtually, in of, sure. In terms sure. of the tally So you, you voted one way and it's changed to another way. We saw no evidence Understood. of that. 
Uh, and actually our goal in all of our efforts working with state and locals is that every American's vote is counted and is counted correctly. And I think that's important, both counted and counted correctly. But on the CFI, you know, it's a much broader conversation. It's not just in elections that they're meddling within our society. Right? We see that through trade, we see that through diplomacy, we through, see that through academic institutions. I mean, it's a, it's a broad campaign to influence our democracy and so discord. I think the good news about that stat is to me what it says is that Americans are, are hip to this campaign now. They understand that this is a particular and very specific campaign against our democracy. So I'm actually encouraged by that number. I do think we need to do more as a government. It requires a whole of government because it's not just the elections. But I do think generally, you know, the way I look at it, Americans have a right to know who's saying what. Uh, the what is usually protected under the First Amendment. This, again, is also different than terrorist use of the internet. But if your neighbors tell you five things, you're probably going to think differently if I tell you it's five Russian bots. Right? So how do we unmask and how do we figure out what are those authentic sources for information? On cyber, the cyber element of this, Vladimir Putin said just this week that he wanted to have a joint investigation, effectively, of cyber attacks in the U.S. election. President Trump said he found that to be, in his words, an incredible offer. Is that a good idea? I, I would just direct you to what Director Ray said last night. I think he said it quite well. Uh, there's a process that the uh, special counsel will go through. The indictments will be carried through, and that makes sense to me. For the clarity, for those who weren't here yesterday, Director Ray said that it was not high on his list of investigative tactics. <laughs> <clears throat> I want to ask you, if we can, about immigration. Obviously, it's an issue that you have been prominently associated with in the course of the last several months, the president's zero-tolerance policy. Did you know about the policy before Jeff Sessions announced it? So it's, you know, it's, this is one of the conversations where uh, words actually matter, so bear with me for one second. Um, just to give a perspective, what I would say is the, our immigration system, border security system, unfortunately, are just broken. So the ideals and the empirical truths that we have as Americans in this current system cannot be true at the same time. So kids should be with their parents. Countries should be able to protect borders. Governments should be able to protect communities. Uh, we as Americans believe we should protect those who are vulnerable populations. But the system is so broken, you can't do it all at the same time. So the policy wasn't a policy in the sense that we have a law that says that if you come to our country illegally between ports of entry, you've broken the law. So it wasn't as much a policy as a decision to enforce the law across the board to encourage immigrants to go to ports of entry, where that's a legal entry. Now, that doesn't mean they have a right to stay in the United States if they don't have an asylum claim or other reason, but it was to try to discourage the trafficking, the smuggling, the TCOs, all the dangers on this journey. I mean, we have both a security mission here, but a very important humanitarian uh, mission. As you know, we have 10,000 unaccompanied children right now in HHS care. That's 10,000 children whose parents sent them on this journey without any parental supervision, with smugglers, with traffickers, with other adults. They have no advocates. They're here alone. HHS is taking care of them. So we have to fix the system. I've been working very closely, as you know, ad nauseum with Congress on a skinny bill, a big bill, or this bill, or this, this bill, to try to get them to fix the system because all of these things have to be true at the same time. So in terms of the policy, I know you say the law that's being, that was announced the way it would be sort of acted upon. In simple terms, again, though, did you know that there would be this new announcement that the White House, the administration, would be acting on this policy when Jeff Sessions announced it? 
We, I think in the uh, DHS community and DOJ community for many years, it had been discussed. Uh, what's not well understood is Did this, you get a heads up? Well, it, it's yes and no, because the, we had always done this at DHS. In other words, we had always enforced the law. So the last administration enforced the law, which uh, meant they also enforced the law against families. Administration before that enforced the law against families. So that part wasn't really new. So to the extent that uh, the AG made that determination, what he was saying is, let's not exempt any class from prosecution that's coming here illegally. So did you express concerns that young children would be separated from their parents? Was that something you communicated? We have to protect uh, children. We have to make sure that the system allows us to keep children and families together. Right now, under the law in court cases, we cannot do that. Did you express concerns at the time when this was I discussed? Have, I, have I have testified seven times to the need to change the laws so that parents and children can be kept together. Help me out here. Everybody knows it's hard to do your job. You're working in an administration for a president who can make policy sometimes by Twitter. Sometimes he just makes comments by Twitter uh, that puts pressure on what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. I understand and know that you support his agenda, but what are American people, what are the American what are the American people supposed to think when initially you say publicly that only Congress can fix the family separation policy, and then days later the president signs an executive order that fixes it? Well, if you remember, the executive order, and I, I forget the exact title, but the title was you know, giving Congress an opportun opportunity to act. So it was trying to uh, freeze the situation uh, so that, and I think at the time we were all very hopeful that Congress actually would act to enable us to keep families together under the law. Uh, what we're currently doing, as you know, is there is no family separation occurring uh, for the last four or, or five weeks since the president issued So no idea. kids are being separated from their parents at the border at any the, point right now? The only time kids are separated from the, the border is three instances, and these have always been the instances where they've been separated. When we cannot guarantee that a parent or an adult is their, in fact, parent or legal guardian, when the child is in clear danger, sometimes, unfortunately, kids are traveling with adults, you can see visible abuse. Uh, we do take the time to make sure that, that they are okay. And then the third one is when an adult has to go to a criminal detention setting. And this is why when we enforce the law against those illegal uh, entries, they go there. Uh, so if you happen to fall in one of those categories, the last two, uh, you will still be separated for the protection of the child, but we are no longer prosecuting at this time families who choose to illegally enter. But can you understand the frustration, though, for Americans? Because the line that you communicated, among others, was that only Congress can fix this. And the it's effort, true. But, but it's, as you just say, it's been fixed in the absence What's, of Congress acting. But which part is fixed? We have no border control now. All but we've families done, are not being separated. People were asking if family separation can be fixed. But that's only one part of the puzzle. Right. That's why it's complex. So what we do see in this recent uh, court case, for example, uh, with the children under five, 20% of the adults that came to the border with them were determined not to be fit to be reunited with those children. Some of them, some of the parents, it was simply because they had a DUI on their record. Is a DUI sufficient for an adult not to be with them? Uh, you know, I'd refer you to the court filing, but the vast majority of those 20 adults were either not parents, they were smugglers or traffickers, they were kidnappers, there was a murderer, there was a child exploiter, there was someone who's convicted of child abuse. So these, these are adults who in American society we would never place with American children. We owe the same protections to children from anywhere as a vulnerable population. I know you've been down there. You've certainly seen the pictures on TV of these children that are being held in what appear to be like chain link cages. You've heard the audio played of 
some children that were crying behind closed doors. Was there ever a moment where you said to yourself, what are we doing here? I say all the time, the system is broken. I do, and I think Congress is a part of it, but I don't want to lose the push factor But, is it, but let me ask about, but yeah. as it relates to the kids though, as you, you've been down there, you've made trips to the border, I want to ask if you've been specifically to McAllen, Texas, to the Ursula uh, Patrol Processing Center where most of the family separations took place. You're there, you've seen this. You're a human, when you see that, did you think to yourself, yeah. This is, not the, this is not the way America acts. Did that ever cross your mind? I say this is crazy. This is a system that, look, we have a constitutional imbalance right now, just to be clear. So if we back up, here's what's happening. We have Congress telling the executive branch, don't enforce the laws we passed. We don't have courage to fix them. We have the judicial branch, who is neither operational nor a legislative body, saying this is how we want you to enforce the law in a very tactical way thereby making the law. How this should work is Congress should make the laws. The law enforcement body should enforce the laws. The judicial branch should interpret them. It's broken. But as I said at the beginning, these empirical truths, these values, should all be true at the same time. We should be able to keep families together. We should be able to secure our borders. We should be able to protect our communities. But unfortunately, with these five, you know, we have 50,000 people coming into the country illegally each month. Last, you know, this last month was a little bit down from that. But what that means in there is we're not able to take care of those who truly are seeking asylum, right, from a humanitarian mission because we have such an incredible backlog. We're not able to protect those 10,000 UACs that come here. We put them in the care of HHS, but then we have to find a sponsor for them, make sure that it's a sponsor that's gonna take care of them. We also are not addressing the push factor, which is what I've been spending a lot of time doing. Just back from been a trip to, to Guatemala. Guatemala twice. I've been met with President Pinineto five times. I've met with the new incoming president in Mexico personally. Uh, I've really been trying to work with them on what is the strategy that we can help stabilize your country, do development, and make it a place where your citizens want to stay and so they don't feel that they're forced to flee and migrate. And oh, by the way, how can we work with the international community to provide asylum opportunities along the way? Because if you're truly seeking asylum, I want you to be safe as soon as possible. I don't want you to have to pay a smuggler to get to the United States. You know, the stat that I, I have used recently just because it's so heart-wrenching, this journey, I mean, smugglers are not humanitarians. We cannot have a system that encourages smugglers. We give a pregnancy test at DHS to every girl over 10 to provide for their medical care. That is how dangerous the journey is. It's just one data point. Uh, for privacy of the children, we rarely give case after case of specifics, but I can guarantee you this journey is terrible. It's in everyone's interest to get the smugglers out of the way and from a regional approach, which is what I've been pushing when I've met and called this ministerial recently, we gotta, we gotta protect these vulnerable populations, but we have to do it in a way that where we can all abide by the law. Just to get back to the children in this, a lot of child psychologists have said publicly, they say this amounts to child abuse. Is this child abuse being imposed, enforced by the American government? I think that we have 2,000 children uh, who need our care in terms of being reunited with their parents, and we're working very hard on doing that. We have 10,000 children that have no advocates for them whatsoever. Uh, and then we have a lot of children whose parents, when they receive final orders of removal, decide to leave their children here. 
All three of those children, I, groups of children, I worry about. And I think we need to do more to protect them. You talked about the young children. Let me just ask you quickly. There's a deadline for those who aren't aware. That's a week from today, July 26th. The court has mandated this deadline for the U.S. government to reunify. Uh, government lawyers just gave the number 2,500 children with their parents by next week. Will you meet that deadline of one week from today? We will do our best, but we will not cut corners. Again, this is about the protection of the child. We had a 315% increase in fraudulent families presenting at the border. So I just, you know, this point is lost, but we need to protect the children. Most of these, you know, the good portion of these adults showing up are not their family. But I guess Do the not question, want to care the people think I'm a dad when our kid comes out of the hospital, they have their bracelet on their wrist, a parent yeah. is easily connected with their child so nobody gets dispersed or right. lost or sent home with the wrong family. Why didn't that happen here? It seems like this shouldn't have been so difficult that you all of a sudden have parents who are stuck in detention at the border and children that are in Michigan or Washington State or Maine. I think the dispersion is simply one of just resources. So HHS has uh, facilities throughout the country, uh, so that is the logistical challenge. We normally have adults uh, in detention facilities that are closer to the border. Uh, that is the easiest and fastest way to get them through immigration proceedings. Uh, but what I can tell you now is every parent knows where every child is. We know where every child is. Uh, but we do want to make sure that that adult that presented with the child is safe for the child. So and how we'll are continue you continue to work with the court on that. How are you going to connect those children whose parents have already been deported to other countries? Uh, we'll work to refine them. So we'll work with the consulates. Uh, we will do everything we can to expeditiously how long will that? How long, we say expeditiously, but how long will that take for some of these kids still under the age of five? Uh, it's complicated because remember, uh, these, some of these, all of these adults who, were, who left without their kids left based on a decision to leave their children. So now we're saying to them, no, 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 you have to take the children. So we have to have that and then we have to involve the other countries. You know, one of the Northern Triangle countries, when I just met with them, said to me, uh, it's not appropriate for DHS or the United States government to determining what's in the best interest of the child. We in our courts will determine what's in the best interest of the child. So it's very complicated. But we are working very closely with the judge to make sure that they understand all these complexities, where the parents are, and how we can best do this. Uh, ICE falls beneath, falls it within does. the DHS. Obviously, a lot of people have seen headlines lately where some on the left in particular are saying, abolish ICE. Even if you concede that abolishing ICE would be going too far, even if you acknowledge, uh, agree, we would agree that abolishing ICE, as many people say, if that's going too far, do you concede that ICE has work to do to build trust with those communities in this country? I think that ICE does so many, many missions, and I think we forget about that. I think they, you know, they do anti-smuggling, anti-trafficking, they do child exploitation. They have an amazing cyber crime center. Uh, they're forefront in the opioid crisis. They return foreign order, artifacts to foreign countries. Uh, they do enforcement of IP theft. Uh, part of their mission is immigration enforcement. Uh, but they do it professionally every day. So why are so day. many folks, why has this become such a moment where so many in those largely immigrant communities are anxious about ICE? There's a concern that they'll go underground, which doesn't help your efforts in trying to crack down and keep the homeland safe if the people in those communities aren't helping you provide information. I think there's just a lot of information, misinformation out there. Uh, what I do know is that both ICE and CBP work very closely with the communities. 
we have almost everyone at, at CBP that deals, for example, at the border are bilingual. Uh, in many cases, they speak many other languages in addition to Spanish. We do see most of the uh, illegal migrants coming up speak Spanish. Uh, you know, I think they continue to work with the community and they continue to do it with all professionalism. They put their lives at risk to protect our communities. I mean, they, they're at the forefront of MS-13. You know, MS-13, as you know, is motto is rape, kill, and control. And that's not a, something they throw away. That is what they live by. That's Isn't MS-13, though, sort of focused on smaller communities? They're largely hitting immigrant populations in certain areas throughout the country, as opposed to the president has suggested MS-13 is everywhere. But the facts are well, that it's I not Well, I think we've seen right? in Long Island and other communities that uh, MS-13 is attacking outside of immigrant communities. But what you just said is exactly why many immigrant communities welcome ICE, because ICE is protecting them from MS-13. Let me ask you about the president. Tell me if you can. You know, what's your working relationship like with President Trump? Uh, very professional. I'm always fascinated by the fascination around this question. Uh, we work well together. I give him my honest opinion and honest assessment. Uh, I think Does he take always, it? He listens. He loves diverse voices. You know, I think you, you know that. You see that in briefings. Um, he will talk to a variety of experts. He'll talk to a variety of people who have seen it from different views. He craves those different insights before he makes decisions. Um, he knows I'll give him my honest assessment. Uh, he knows he'll I'll honest, also give him my honest assessment about expectations. There is a lot that takes a while uh, in our government, uh, particularly when it comes to Congress. So I think it's important to give him my advice, but also to explain to him the difficulties and challenges inherent in reaching that goal. You've seen the headlines about the president berating you. Is any of that true? The president's frustrated. Uh, you know, in that particular uh, meeting that was widely reported, he was frustrated. I was too. Look, in his mind- Was he frustrated with you? He was frustrated because he wants to secure communities. He wants to secure our borders. And the frustration is, without congressional action, what else can we do as an executive branch within our authorities to protect American communities? And that frustration's shown through, but it wasn't anything that I hadn't been frustrated about and I'm frustrated about now. You know, while I'm waiting to try to get Congress to, to do their part of this, I'm really working on the push factors. So I've been to Guatemala twice, as we said. I've been to Mexico. A lot of this is helping on both sides. So we've got the pull factors that incentivizes. I mean, let me just give you another example. There are billboards in Central America and the Northern Triangle countries advertising how to grab a kid to get into the United States illegally because that loophole is so big. Billboards. So part of my interaction with the Northern Triangle countries, take the billboards down. Let's talk about increasing your border patrol. Let's, increasing about, let's talk about increasing your asylum capacity. Let's talk about campaigns and awareness about the dangers of the journey. But it's got to be both. It's a comprehensive approach. So back to your working relationship with the president. So has he ever berated you? Well, the answer to that was yes or no. I think he just, if you were there, I think he just expressed, why can we not secure our borders today? We heard from Secretary, uh, excuse me, we heard from FBI Director Ray yesterday, suggested that he didn't deny reports or suggestions that he has considered resigning. We've seen resignations and firings. Have you ever considered resigning in the time you've worked as the I will, I will continue to work as hard as I can as long as I can support the men and women of DHS. Did you ever consider yeah. it? I, you know, I think that the suggestions 
when I've heard those suggestions, they're in uh, situations I would never consider resigning. I will continue to do my job every day to support the men and women of DHS. It's a privilege and honor to do so. As long as I can help America, I will continue to do my job. How's your friend John Kelly? Uh, he's well. He's kind of busy. How's it going for him? Uh, it's well. It's well. I think uh, you know we continue to refine processes uh, in the White House, uh, make sure that uh, the policy uh, positions that go to the president are full-rounded, do have those different voices that he craves. Um, he brings a wealth of experience, as you know, to the job, uh, and I know he would say it's an, an honor to serve. We've seen his frustration on his face. He doesn't hide it, as you know well most recently when the president was in Russia, where John Kelly put his head in his hands for a little bit, and the White House later explained that he was frustrated that they hadn't served croissants and fruit at breakfast. Um, I think it was bacon. Bacon, perhaps. yeah. Bacon. We share a love of bacon, so I think. Uh, no, I think. Uh, is this? I guess the question is: Is this working? I'm in the White House every day. I have yeah. private conversations, and what I hear from people in the West Wing, who will tell me, not on background, they don't want their name being shared, but they'll say that he's. In his own world now, the president doesn't rely on his guidance or his counsel anymore, and he's sort of been marginalized here. Is that what's happened behind the scene to your friend John Kelly? Well, I am not in the White House anymore. You're there often. Uh, I am, but I would, defer, I would just defer those questions. I've not seen anything like that. Every meeting I'm in uh, with the president, uh, General Kelly is usually there. Uh, he speaks his mind, he gives his advice, he makes sure, makes sure that the president knows uh, the other relevant facts. Um, I just, I haven't seen that personally. You and I are both traveling back to Washington today, so you and your past life uh, helped develop the program where you put your little toiletries in your Ziploc yes. bag and you know, your under four ounces deal. Are we any closer to getting rid of those limits? <laughs> Uh, and I will just, on uh, the administrator's uh, benefit over there, just plug, for those of you who came up to me last night and complained about taking off your belt still, uh, join PreCheck. Join PreCheck. Uh, we can uh, get you through faster. Uh, it's much easier for you. Uh, you know, I think we'll continue to take the threat very seriously. I'm never going to compromise the security of the American public. Uh, against their convenience. So we want to be very clear on how to make it as expeditious as possible to get through the travel. But if we believe there is a threat, you better believe we're going to do everything we can to prevent that threat from manifesting. The White House finally got its travel ban, the third go, the Supreme Court ruling recently. Do you think that it will materially make America safer? And has it disrupted any terrorist plots to this point? So this is actually an area where we've done a tremendous amount of work at DHS that I'm quite proud of. So uh, as this uh, process, this concept has matured of what is the information sharing that's required for Americans to know who's traveling here and if they intend to do us harm, we really have raised the baseline across the world, literally across the world. So DHS has looked at every single country and determined, do they meet the information sharing requirements to give us assurance that we know who's traveling here? Then the travel restrictions that follow when needed are very tailored. They're not a ban. They're okay, this country is either on a path to meet this. The president calls it a ban. Uh, I think what he is talking about is the very original, uh, you know, we've moved, right now there is no ban. As you know, even the countries uh, who are on the list, it's travel restrictions, that's what it is. So should he call um, it something different than a travel ban? I think the president can call it what he thinks uh, is appropriate. Uh, from our implementation perspective, what we do is we tailor it. Uh, it's very important to do so. Some of these requirements are things that should have been required a long time ago. For example, 
Uh, could you tell us when you have a lost and stolen passport? Could you tell Interpol so that when someone arrives on that passport, we know it's not you? Uh, could you share your known and suspected terrorist watch list with us? And this is important because, you know, what many Americans might not know is we still see 10, uh, DHS prevents 10 known and suspected terrorists from traveling to the United States a day. So this concept of information sharing is vital to our national security. Is the biggest concern of terrorists coming through the borders or is it by air to the country right now? It's probably both. And I think that's because we don't know what we don't know. Uh, so we do know we apprehend. But so if we say it's both, then that means that we do know that it's happening both ways. Or is it that we just can't rule out that it could happen? Uh, so all of the above without getting into to classified areas, uh, but just think about the unknown. So, you know, the border figures are always interesting because the number represents the number of apprehensions, not the number of people coming here illegally, right? So you know what you know, but we don't pretend to say that that 50,000, as an example, uh, is indicative of every person that is getting into the country illegally. So we worry about that. Air, we happen to know a lot more information because of how people travel. They give us their travel information in advance. <clears throat> if we have a database that is appropriate, we can check against, we do. Uh, and people who present at ports of entry, we can also do a check. So going back to that question, we don't have to call it a travel ban for the sake of this conversation, but have the travel restrictions been successful in foiling any terrorist plots? So again, it's, uh, you know, I think the intel community, we all share this uh, struggle. Uh, sometimes we're not able in an unclassified setting to talk about specific plots. Without specifics, have uh, we succeeded? Has it done one or two or I, none? Or? I believe it has tremendously increased our security without question. Let me ask you, next month we are going to have the, we are approaching the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville. Uh, I guess the question is, what is DHS doing to address the threat of white nationalists? And pre has President Trump made this a priority? So DHS has made a priority to focus on all forms of violence. Um, we obviously have what we had traditionally been looking at out of uh, radical uh, Islam. Uh, we have the homegrown extremists, whatever cap camp they fall in. Uh, but we also have white supremacists and other groups that, who self-profess that their purpose or motive is violence. So how are we combating that? So partnership. Uh, we look at it from a couple different perspectives. Uh, we look at counter-messaging. Uh, we look at ways to do what I call off-ramping. In other words, somebody has now self-affiliated with a radical extremist group, but how do we provide them a different way to communicate and get their message across in a non-violent way? Of course, it involves law enforcement, but frankly, it also involves social services. It involves uh, the social uh, psychology uh, community. And the reason for that is because what we see particularly in the US is some of these groups, some of these individuals are motivated by violence. They then find the group where they can find a community where they can be violent. So sometimes it's less about the ideology and we have to track down the motives for the violence. Has the president made this a top priority? Uh, we have talked to him about this. Uh, he, does, uh, he has made it clear that as a, a homeland priority, uh, he expects uh, DHS in conjunction with law enforcement and the FBI to prevent Americans from any form of violence. Uh, it's, not, it's not acceptable. Uh, we will continue to work with anyone who will work with us. It does need to be a broader conversation. I think we've seen this in school safety, right? It needs to be a much broader uh, yeah. conversation. Uh, but yes, it's a priority. But when he, when in the, in the comments, they're obviously highly publicized, when he placed blame, in his words, on both sides, does that make your job harder when the president things, says things that at least in those communities are viewed as he's got our back? 
I think what's interesting about that is we saw, you know, and I think we continue to learn. Uh, maybe there was uh, different, uh, you know, whether it was foreign influence or different purposeful um, attempts to get both sides, if you will, uh, aggressively pitted against each other. I think that what I see DHS's role, and again, we, we work with the larger uh, community. DHS is the largest uh, law enforcement agency that's not well known. We have 66,000 uh, sworn uh, law enforcement officials. But we have to work with everyone to help communities understand what are the warning signs, what are the ways in which we can prepare. Uh, and that's no matter who it is. I think what's important about that conversation is it's not that one side is right, one side is wrong. Anybody that is advocating violence, uh, we need to work uh, to mitigate. We have about 15 minutes left. We have a hard out at 10 o'clock, so I'm going to let everybody get some questions in in just a moment. But let me ask you one last one as we're now in the middle of hurricane season. Yes. There was new reporting out of Puerto Rico within the last several weeks. As the season began, there's still 11,000 people there, at least as of June 1st. I checked this morning. I didn't see a more recent number that said 11,000 people were still without power. In retrospect, and you weren't the head of DHS, obviously, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security at the time, but what would, what should the administration have done differently as it relates to the hurricane that hit specifically Puerto Rico? Uh, good question. So as you know, we've uh, recently completed a DHS uh, lessons learned, a FEMA lessons learned. And uh, you did this back in the day following Katrina as well. Some yes, yes, yes. Uh, DOD has done one as well and as well as our interagency partners. I think the three main lessons that I would draw from that that we will incorporate uh, to do for future storms uh, that are similar. One, you know, we had just hit, been hit by two major hurricanes before Maria. So this concept of how are you prepared as a federal government when you have simultaneous major events is very important because it goes to capacity and it also goes to how do we pre-position. So what you'll see this year are uh, FEMA integration teams out in the regions now uh, preparing, building capacity on the uh, incident management side. What you'll also see is working additional work with states on modeling. So what, what is it that you have that is a particular vulnerability in your area? Uh, the infrastructure in Puerto Rico pre-storm uh, has been widely uh, discussed, but they're also an island. So this was the largest logistical mission in FEMA's history, uh, just getting aid Was there. the response satisfactory? We can always do better. I mean, I'm never going to answer that question on anything that The president we said it was a 10 out of 10. We can do better. Uh, so maybe we need to do an 11 or 12. I think we always learn lessons. Uh, we learn how we can work better. Uh, communication uh, is always something that bedevils the government because we're so big. So making sure we have that common operational picture and continue to, to strive forward. The other thing I would say, you know, at DHS, most of our mission, we tell our, our viewers at home, if you will, don't attempt this at home. Mm -hmm. uh, but community resilience is one where we encourage everyone, you know, this has to start with it has to start that way. Uh, hopefully you guys have had some time for some personal preparedness and you have some of your own questions. So uh, I think there are some mics out there. We'll take some questions if I can, sir. Secretary Nelson, thank you. Uh, Chris Miller from the Air Force Academy. You referred to uh, evolving from counterterrorism to counter threat increase in cyber attack surfaces. As you look at the way the federal government structured to, uh, to deal with that evolving threat, do you think the organization and ethos of all the national security organizations is right or do you see a need for change? I think that's a, that's a great question. I think from my perspective, uh, it's a change in posture, uh, at least at DHS. So we need to be much more on our toes. Uh, I tell my component heads to uh, zoom out and lean in. In other words, we have to be looking at the horizon 
Uh, we have to be very aware of what those emerging threats are and then double down on the threats we know to make sure we have the capability and capacity. On emerging threats, you know, an example that we've been very focused on lately in addition to ChemBio is drones. Uh, DHS does not currently have the authority to identify, monitor, or interdict drones, but that threat is real now. We see them dropping drugs over the border. Uh, we see them surveilling sensitive locations. We see them disrupting the communications of law enforcement. Uh, so this is not a question of if, this is happening now. DHS has no authority to combat this threat. So what we need to do is become much more nimble, flexible, uh, dare I say, work with Congress to have a uh, better uh, organization so that we don't have to go to 80, 90 committees uh, to get the authorities that we need. Uh, but I think as threats advance, we need the authority and then we can build the capacity. Uh, so it's a change in posture and it's change in, in how we look at the threat. But we have to be very aware that the threat is changing very quickly and we have to adjust accordingly. Other questions? Yes, please, you right here in the middle. Hi, Gail Harris with Lima Charlie Media. I'm glad you talked about drones. That was gonna be my initial question. My backup is how well is the cyber incident information sharing program going with industry? If not well, why and how can we do better? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this one I could talk about for hours. I'll try to talk about it for a minute. Uh, as you know, we have a, a series of information sharing and analysis centers, the ISACs. Uh, we have, what we do is we share in sort of a hub model. Uh, the information sharing is greatly approved. We also continue to recognize that should the intel community ever have specific credible threat information about any particular sector, or particular, particular company, institution, uh, we will share that information. Uh, we won't let the bureaucracy of security clearances hold us up. Security clearances are very important because they allow everybody to, to have the conversation on a steady state basis, uh, but we do understand that that can, can never be a reason why somebody didn't get information that they need. Um, I'm happy and excited about a cyber summit that we are uh, pulling together later this month. We'll have a variety of CEOs from Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies. Uh, we'll be making a major announcement there on additional ways that we're gonna work with the private sector to really understand the risk and to be able to share it real time in a tailored and specific way. As you know, I think the challenge over the years has been some of the information sharing has not been tailored. So I'm trying to move away from telling the private sector, hey, there's a cyber threat, to here is how the threat indicators will manifest within your systems. You know, here is how your system is configured incorrectly given the latest malware, uh, to try to help them really mitigate and respond to the threat. So what I would say is it continues to improve. Uh, we hope that it will uh, continue to improve even more, uh, but we're working very closely with the private sector right now, and so I think the partnership is strong. Hi, I'm Kevin Barron, Executive Editor of Defense One. Uh, the President continues to say that a part of the border security um, threat is the uh, arrival of potential terrorists from Middle East, Islamic groups. Um, what evidence is there of that? Can you tell us what's the current status? Is it a real threat? Is it just a scare talking point? Is it, is it old news? Is it new news? Give us an update. Yeah, it's a, you know, when I was last, when I called this minister on Guatemala, you know, the way that I talked to my counterparts is, we have a common enemy. The common enemy are the TCOs, are the smugglers, are the traffickers, are the child, explo child exploiters, but are also the terrorists. I mean, we have seen open source, uh, both ISIS and Al Qaeda, advertise 
how to use both our refugee and asylum process and the southern border to get into the United States to attack Americans. So the threat is real, as I mentioned before, we prevent 10 known respected terrorists traveling a day. Those are the ones we know about. Uh, some of those are presenting uh, at ports of entry. Uh, so the threat is real. The threat has not diminished. In fact, I would say on the TCO criminal uh, drug trafficking, it's increased uh, in the last three to four years. So those partnerships are extraordinarily important to take that regional approach as to how we can combat that. About five more minutes. Hopefully we can squeeze in a few more questions, sir, in the back. Um, I think we share a common goal of ultimately stopping the northward flow of children, of families. Um, and it seems to me that that requires building peace and democracy in the region, particularly in the Northern Triangle. As you have alluded, you visited the region several times. In the latter part of the Obama administration, they launched the Alliance for Prosperity mm -hmm. and committed $750 million to that endeavor, exactly trying to uh, educate young women and strengthen judicial systems. Yet one of the first acts of President Trump was to reduce that financial commitment by 60% and further excluded El Salvador from the recipient of those um, funds. It seems to me that's moving exactly in the opposite direction. Shouldn't we be dramatically increasing our development assistance and trying to stabilize those judicial systems, trying to protect the young women and give them hope for the future? I think it's a different combination of different pockets of aid. So I've been working with OPIC, I've been working with the Interdevelopment Development Bank, uh, I've been working with UNHCR, uh, with ICRC. I think it's a capacity building uh, is what we're really after. There's different ways to do that. Some of it is direct aid. Some of it's through information sharing. Some of it is through uh, helping uh, train Border Patrol, uh, helping uh, train Marines in Mexico, as you know, uh, the USG has done. So I think it's a full, comprehensive approach that's needed. Uh, I am actively working with the State Department. I am actively working with Mexico, other countries in the region, with Canada, uh, to make sure that we balance this. Uh, we'll have a major summit in September, I might have mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, on security and prosperity. And the prosperity piece is matching, taking what we as a region can give from a governmental perspective, both in terms of capacity training, information sharing, and aid, but also how can we bring in the private sector, the foundations, the NGOs, to help match that and really tailor programs that spur that development and help stabilize the region. So we have to do that. It, until we address the push factors, uh, there will continue to be that irregular or illegal migration. To the young lady right here. Hi, Julia Yaffe from GQ. Um, I have a question. You seem to be really kind of parsing and ducking the question about Russian interference in the election and what the goal was, which was to sow discord, as you said, but also to help elect Donald Trump. Do you disagree with the intelligence assessment of all the country's uh, intelligence agencies, which seem to be pretty unanimous? I do not disagree. I agree uh, completely. I've said that many times with the intel assessment. Uh, what I'm trying to focus my comments on is the fact that they have the capability and the will, and what the role of DHS is, is to prepare for them to continue to try to use both foreign influence and direct attacks on infrastructure to affect the results of our election, and that's what we'll continue to do. Hi there, Dina Temple Raston with National Public Radio. I wonder if not braceleting the kids at the border was also part of a deterrent strategy and to send a message. Can you comment on that? That I missed it. The witch She's part. asking if the strategy of 
family separation at the border was in part deterrence. Uh, so the, the strategy, again, uh, is to enforce the law. Uh, I don't know that I would call that a strategy. But Did deterrence play a role? Jeff Sessions himself said this is deterrence in his public comments. Uh, so it might have that effect. Uh, from a DHS perspective, when I have been presented with the option to separate all families, which would mean those at ports of entry or all of those who illegally enter, whether or not there's judicial capacity to prosecute, I have continued to say no. So all I can say is present, when presented with the option, are you willing to do, do this to separate families for the purpose of deterrence? My answer has continued to be no. I think we probably have time for one more. Not to belabor the point, but I just want to follow up on Julia's question because you, you seem to contradict yourself because earlier you said you have not seen evidence of the specific assessment that the interference was intended to help Trump win, which not only the January 2017 assessment found, but charges issued since then against co-conspirators also presented evidence that, that their intention was to help Donald Trump. So, so when you just said in answer to Julia's question that you agree with the intelligence community's assessment, are you saying that you agree with not only the assessment that it was Russia that interfered, but that their intention was to help Donald Trump and disadvantage Hillary Clinton? And can you, can you just say those words very simply and directly? <laughs> I, I agree with the intel community's assessment full stop. Any attack on our democracy, which is what that was, whether it's successful or unsuccessful, is unacceptable. It is an attack on our democracy. Election security is national security. The intel community uh, is made up of professionals who do this for a living, who are dedicated public servants. I absolutely believe their assessment. I think what we need to do at DHS is take the information they provide us and make sure that the states have it and that they can prepare and prevent any Russian interference in our election systems. Madam Secretary, everybody, thank you very much. Madam Secretary, thank you My for your pleasure. time. My pleasure. Appreciate your being here. Kirsten Nielsen was sworn in as the sixth Secretary of Homeland Security in December of last year. She replaced John Kelly. She's the first former DHS employee to become the Secretary. Peter Alexander reports for NBC News. His coverage includes the current administration, the 2016 presidential campaign, and numerous international stories, including the death of Osama bin Laden. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Security Forum on July 19th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Security Forum's programming team includes Clark Irvin, Rob Walker, and John Hogan. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.